most people get rich from a liquidation event, mm. multiple liquidation events. And then it's what you do with that money to create more liquidation events. That's from my experience of the super rich people I've met over the years, all the billionaires, they just, they've been able to hit liquidation events many, many times. So if you collect the money now, what would you do with it? Then across 20 years, mm. only the person that's doing that deal can answer it. And, you know, it's easy to say, oh yeah, like generational wealth, you could hand that over. But if you're taking a hundred million and you know what you're going to do with it, perhaps, perhaps there's some other opportunities that you know you're looking at that could create more for you, then I would take the do the My graduates from my school being Forbes, backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> a mic drop. Backdrop. Backdrop. All right, guys, welcome back, EYL. We are live from the UK, United Kingdom, London. Yes, this yes. This is an amazing vibe. We just came off of our legendary networking event. That's an understatement, Shadi. Oh, man, the queue. The queue <laughs> was, was around the corner. Five blocks long, Man's man. getting much love in the UK. Yes, yes. <laughs> 2,000 people, man. Shout out to everybody that came out last night. Um, tape, shout out to Tape. We are in the Tape house right now, so... This is actually a, a full circus moment because the, one of the first people that I actually connected with online in the UK is my man, Jack Jones. So legendary DJ. Um, would you say EDM and techno? No, nah, it's like house. House? House, yeah. House. house of, girl. Yeah, house. Yeah, house um, <laughs> so, girl, uh, you know they, about them ones. Yeah, <laughs> I know about them things. Yeah, them things there. <laughs> so big yeah. following. Big influence out here. And he actually hit me up probably like three years ago. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Early, early. And um, we connected. You know, had a few questions about, you know, some business stuff. And um, we spoke on the phone. And, um, you know, just kind of been following his journey. He's been following our journey. So when we was coming here, um, we connected and actually met in person for the first time a few days ago. And just good vibes. Good vibes. So I'm like, we want to shoot some content out here. Would you be interested in doing an interview? And he's like, yeah. So, you know, it just makes sense because, like I said, from a music standpoint, killing the game. Um, but also from a business standpoint, you know, has a label. Um, been in the game for a long time. Uh, travels the world, DJing. Um, has a residency. We going to talk about yeah, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there and we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. Both. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, in one of the most luxurious places in the world. We'll talk about that. But um, a real superstar in the game. So first and foremost, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. My absolute pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on. No, no problem, this, no this problem. It's going to be a legendary situation. Yeah. Legendary. I mean, you guys are already tearing it up. We were at tape last night, and you guys are... It was like the big MCs were in town. <laughs> the Q. <laughs> the Q. Was the Q crazy. wrapped the block. The Q. Very serious. Yeah. I was like, wow, I might have to put on a show with these guys too. <laughs> Stop the DJ set and you might start chatting. Yeah. Let us stand on stage for two minutes. No sound. <laughs> I like it, man. You're doing good things, man. Appreciate, I appreciate it. it. And appreciate I actually, the, one of the reasons why I reached out to Rashad all those years ago was because of the content. Like, you know, I think it's a really important message and there's not a lot of information presented in this way and how you guys do it so relatable and but with that entertainment behind it as well it's sick no, i appreciate it thank you brother so let's get into this convo so all right so obviously you know well-known dj 
now. Um, but where did it start? Like, how'd you actually get your start to scale? Because a lot of times I feel like, especially people in the music business, DJs, it's hard for them to really scale. Like, they might start off doing parties or working with, you know, artists, but they never actually take it to the next level. Very few people actually be able to be successful and have a career, you know, have a career like you have. So how was you able to scale it? I mean, I wouldn't... My main job title, I would say, is, like, a producer, songwriter who DJs, like, because that's the bit that I relish is the creating aspect of it. The And my journey to now, you know, people see, you know, we talk about, like, the residencies and people see the successful aspects of it. Like, uh, today, right now, I think I sold something like, I don't know, like 45 million records across my career now. But I feel like that's the bit before that, the route, wasn't always clear. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't grow up on dance music. Like, my entrance to music was via my stepdad, who was Nigerian, which is why I relate so much to black culture, because he was in my life since I was eight years old. And it was confusing. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Because uh, I'm Chinese and Turkish, but growing up with a Nigerian dad, I'm, my diet musically was fella. You know, my first tape he gave me was KRS-One and uh, Criss Cross. Yeah. Right? That's, the sound of the police. That's what I was saying. <laughs> Dude, like, I, I would have been, like, 10 years old in the primary school. Do you know what primary school, like, yeah. first school? Like, I remember just going, Migga, 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 Mac, Daddy. Yeah. I'm the Migga, Migga. <laughs> right? So, like, and then it was big R&B influences, dance hall. So, initially, I wanted to just be... Uh, and, but I was very academic. Like, uh, I was good in school. Like, uh, for those of you know about GCSEs, like, I was a straight A student, uh, had interviews to Oxford and all that kind of stuff. But I pursued music because that was what was on offer. You know, like, uh, we were growing, my environment, you know, it was just that classic story. Do you know what I mean? Didn't have much. And you just wanted to get wealthy because that's, you feel like that's how you can buy your way out. Like, you can buy your self-esteem that way. You can buy your identity that way. So like, it was either that finance. So I was reading all the stock books early, but I didn't have no money to put into it. <laughs> I remember reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad at like 15. And I didn't, I was like, okay, cool. This is all good, but I need funds, right? So music is where you saw the successful people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like at the time it was uh, the American rappers. And then um, I just wanted to do that. And so I just chased it. And it was like, every door was closing. You know, my parent, I got booted out of the house for it. You know, like, uh, it was very turbulent at home. So, you know, I started off literally in a shed. That was where I was living at the time. With a little ro- a mouse running across the, I called him Ben after the Michael Jackson song. Yeah. You named him. I named him. You have to get to be comfortable with the mouse. You see him every day. Literally, he was just sprinting across the room. You know, and that's kind of, that was the hustle and it's never left. Like I was playing guitar for other artists and I was in a band. I was signed to Atlantic for a few years and I wrote a lot of songs, produced a lot of music. And then I just started Jax Jones maybe about seven years ago. And the rest is history. Like. So it's interesting because you said that obviously Phil Akute was what you're listening to and then KRS-One. Yeah. But even like KRS wasn't, I mean, we grew up, I grew up on that, but it wasn't like, that's the guy as far as like a financial yeah. like, dream to be. And so what, who was it? Like, the, who was the American artist that you said, that's who I need to be. They have the wealth. 
he's the person or she's the person that we need to emulate? It was the era of the Neptunes, if I'm ah. being honest with you. Pharrell um, and that, that Jay-Z run, that whole time. Like, that's why, you know, we talk about watches. I've yeah. got the gold presidential. It's the least valuable Rolex out there in terms of investment. Like, everyone's getting the sports watches and stuff like But this is what Jay-Z was wearing at that time. Uh, and it was just, they were like father figures at the time. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you look up to these guys, Jay-Z would talk about financial literacy at that time in his music, you know. And then Pharrell, I just like... The, the fashion and the club, uh, and then just the way he was able to just create music that was so memorable at the time. That was who I followed. Like, so I don't know that I always stay close to that mentally. And I guess the modern sense of that was Kanye now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So you said you started producing. Did you start DJing first or producing songwriting first? Producing songwriting. Producing songwriting yeah. first. So, what point did you transition to start DJing? That was around the SoundCloud revolution. So, like, at the time, SoundCloud was just going crazy in, like, 2012. And I remember I'd been dropped by Atlantic. I was in a band. And um, this is what kind of makes me believe that all... Sometimes when you're kind of on the come up, you never know all those experiences you had, how they're going to influence what your actual destination is going to be. So... You know, I started off making hip hop and R and B, but there wasn't real a real scene for that over here at the time. Obviously, you've got drill now, where there's a huge black music scene over here. But before, about ten years ago, you had to make pop records to sell out as a black artist over here. So there were or go to America. Do you know what I mean there was a lot of British producers that were going there, like H Money in the states, who did like some Ariana Grande records and stuff like that. Um, Alex the Kid as well, but so. You just had to do other stuff. So I remember I was signed to Atlantic for a few years. I wrote a lot of songs with some of the best songwriters around the world. And that really just honed my craft. And then when we got dropped, I had like my last 5,000 in the account, still trying to act like a big guy. But literally, I was just trying to figure it out. And then SoundCloud, you had like the trap kind of EDM crossover happening. I was like, okay, like I was trying to write songs for other people, but... I didn't enjoy the idea that I could put all this heart and soul into something musically and then the artist will just hold it forever and you don't know what's going to happen to it and you're not in control of that process. The only way that I could do that was to be my own person and that was where DJing come into it. Like, it's, it's something that isn't relying on what I look like. I don't have to, like, it's a bit more timeless. They have less of an expiry date. I just need to make music and I can control all of it and I can perform in this way. And that's where that decision came. It was I was literally just sitting in a dining room thinking, yeah, I might do this DJing thing. <laughs> and then it started. Yeah, so two, that, that was, I remember the SoundCloud era. Um, 2013, 2012. But 2014 yeah. was a, like a life-changing year for you. So the Duke Dumont, I Got You, goes to number one. Yeah. Big song. Yeah. I actually was listening to it. Pretty good song. Do you so, like it? Yeah, I like do it. Do you recognize man. the sample? I don't. Ooh, it's Whitney Houston. Ah. Um, uh, My Love Is Your Love. Beautiful song. Now that you say it. That's a classic. That's a classic record. Well, how was that process? Because now, obviously, you were trying to figure things out, right? You dropped from Atlantic, and now you've got a number one. So now, now, where are we at mentally now? It's like, 
I could probably only answer this now looking back because at the time, my desire to just be something was so strong. Like, that's all I cared about. Like, I would wake up every day um, and just think about how could I prove everyone wrong? That was, I had the biggest chip on my shoulder. Like, you know, I've been dropped. I think, and I know a lot of people can relate to this. Like, when it's not going well, you become a bit of a loner. Do you know what I'm saying? you perhaps not talking to your family as much. You're kind of... Um, yeah, just a bit of a, a hermit. I don't know if you ever heard that word. word. Yeah, hermit, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember um, when that song kicked off, it was just like, oh my God, like, I mean something. And it came about in the most surreal way. Like, I made the song the morning of my birthday. Um, and actually, it's an interesting idea in this because I never grew up listening to house music. And I, I got into it via Duke Lamont. Um, I was working for him as a musician. Mm-hmm. And he was playing me a lot of underground records. And I was like, okay, cool. I didn't get it. But I thought, but because I came from an outsider perspective, applying it to house music, I came with a new, a new vibe. Mm-hmm. And that was the first, second ever house record I ever made was I Got You. Uh, just one morning. And it ended up being a number one Grammy-nominated uh, uh, Brit nominated we never won the Grammy which I'm pretty pissed about I <laughs> deserved it screw the Grammys man <laughs> no no <laughs> no I feel and then and I remember just at the time like man like I, I mean something but it wasn't it still wasn't perfect because it was it was associated with Duke so it was more his record and I remember at the time you know there was confusion over who I was. So I still, it was still, I was starting to see a bit of money, but it was still like, like super early. So I still felt like bottom of the barrel a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Now, did you write and produce the record? I did, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, like there's a big talk about ghost production in dance music and stuff like that. Like, you know, I, de- I wrote that record, but, you know, and then Duke put his vibe on it as well. But, you know, I definitely... It was my track, like, for sure. <laughs> um, so at what point do you transition to the business side and actually get the label? So that's more like, I mean, the journey up till now, to do, I only started the label, which is called Woo Good, in the last year. And that's more so because now, over here, I just had so much experience and had a certain amount of success that I feel like I can offer a platform to up-and-coming artists. Like, you know, the you want, at the time, if people didn't believe in me, if I didn't get put in the rooms with certain people or taking an interest in my life, like, I know you guys were talking about Big Nasty over here. Like, I was making records of Big Nasty when I was 16, 17. You know, getting in those kind of rooms, I was working music soul child, like, when I was 22. Or, um, like, just taking those chances, do you know what I'm saying? And, the kind of I want to try to offer that back to artists over here. So I did the JV with Polydor at Universal, and I just feel like I can create an environment where artists can come in and do their thing, and I kind of understand how to make that a good experience for them. Do you know what I mean? Um. So how do you feel about like the music scene here as opposed to over in America? Like specifically, like artists going independent, owning their masters, talking about the publishing. Is it the same type of vibe where people are just talking about that here or is it more 
just like the yeah we got it over here like i still think you want the thing about music my favorite bit about it is i feel like every artist is like a little entrepreneur especially now do you know what i'm saying you have the best of the best like they're figuring out how to engage their fans they're having to figure out how to make something that a, a banger like you know the big the artists that are consistently back, like putting out big records like do you remember like the 50 cent era or like there's just you get people like that now like we got artists over here called central c like he's making records that are relevant to his to his audience but they're big every time and there's an art form to that like you have to know how to translate your creativity in a way that people are just gonna go your audience are gonna go crazy for it and i've done that for myself as well so i feel like the with that comes all these ancillary incomes like and that was my why i decided to become an artist because you get the brand deals you can work on building your catalog you get um obviously you get your show money and you can tour and that all allows you to just build this big pot do you know what i'm saying and what's up y'all are y'all interested in trying something fresh something new well check out seagram's escapes the iconic flavored malt beverage love for flavor color and relaxation with over more than 15 fruit forward flavors including the perfectly sweet and tart blueberry acai lemonade they're the perfect treat Man, that blueberry acai lemonade is a refreshing blend of tart lemon and sweet blueberry flavors. It's a fan fave, and its blue color is guaranteed to pop on your Final Four IG stories. So whether you're staying at home for March Madness or you're headed out to watch the games, the sweet and refreshing flavors are a perfect pick for those that love flavor and color. With their rainbow of options, you can always find a flavor and color to match your vibe. At 3.2% APV, you can enjoy Seagram's Escapes as is or shake things up and use them as a cocktail mixer. Try pumping up your favorite flavor with the spirit of your choice or get creative with fish bowls, frozen slushies, and jello shots. The built-in flavor and color make Seagram's Escapes an easy shortcut to delicious, insta-worthy cocktails. The options are endless and Seagram's Escapes make it easy to bring them all to life with flavor and color packed in every bottle. So cheers to happiness with Seagram's Escapes and check out that blueberry acai lemonade. Sip responsibly. Thank me later, y'all. Over here, there's a tussle between being independent and people fly it like a flag. Um, and there's pros and cons to it, if I'm being honest with you. I personally wouldn't go independent. Me, because I rely on collaboration. So like the best scenario for someone like me, which I know Marsh, uh, I read about Marshmallow doing, which I think is super cool is where you be your own person, but you do deals with different labels, depending on who you're working with on the label. So if the label, because say like you want to do a song with Ed Sheeran, Ed Sheeran will have, uh, um, he signed to Atlantic or Warner. They're more likely to allow you to do the song with him if they own more of the record. So if you're a free agent, you can do those deals. So that's something that I'm kind of interested in. And then in terms of the catalog, like the, every song is like a little company. So if you're, you know, you, when you write a song with someone and say you're 50-50 on it, you've got 50% of that song. So if it goes and gets played around the world, that's earning in your sleep. Anywhere it gets played on the radio, anytime it gets streamed, you're owning and that all builds up. And then I know you've seen in the news recently, like artists selling their catalog. That's kind of like the big liquidation event that you could work towards after you've earned 
all after you kind of built up all this catalog and your money over the years, you can sell it. And I just think that's a fantastic opportunity. And then you can put that into other things. So you, people should be writing their own stuff, perfecting their songwriting craft. And then in terms of owning their masters, like, like famous stories like Prince, like, and those kind of things. And their companies that uh, I know, uh, is it Troy Carter has a company where they, mm-hmm. uh, artists uh, are able to own their own masters and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Steve, Steve Stout's, Steve Stout's got one as well. Um, it's tricky that world because the machine you need to get that going, you have to be really on point because the majors exist for a reason is because just the monopoly that they have on all the institutions. Yeah. Like if you come, if you plug in like Drake's still on a major, like they you just increase your profit share with them, but let them do all the work. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you just plug into their system and there's an army of people that are built to exploit your record when it's successful. Whereas if you're independent, the bit that, it's, it's like, be, I would compare it to being like, you know, like how everyone glamorizes being in the trap house, right? But it's gutter. Like being independent is tricky because you have to pay for everything and you have to build the teams and you got to run that. Like, Whereas um, being on a major, you can just plug in and it's there. And then if you build a team around it, it just amplifies it. Do you know what I'm saying? So I've hired a lot of my own people to take over certain of the roles that the labels do, but just more from a creativity perspective. Do you know what I mean? So this is the part, because you you mentioned it. I want to talk about the power of collaboration because it didn't always start like that. Well, you, you had some artists that were known and then you got some really big artists, Charlie XCX, yeah. Sweetie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Demi. How did that come about? Was that one of those situations where you're like, all right, I might work with this label because they have that artist that's going to be easy for me to collaborate? Has that been the process the entire time? I mean, so the Sweetie collab, like, she, that was the easiest money she ever earned in her life, bro. <laughs> like, she, she's just collecting bands for, like, dropping, I think on that record she did an eight bar. <laughs> like, Sweetie's business model is perfect. How much, how much did she charge for that? I mean, the number she chicha for that, I don't even, it's like upper, just below six figures. So like for eight bars, <laughs> she's a G. I love like, and it popped on the record. It sounded great. So like the, the kind of, it works in different ways. So like you can reach out via the record label or like you might be able to just meet them and then you kind of get in the studio together. And it's kind of all based on what you've done before, whether they like your vibe. It's, you know, it's quite organic like that. Do you know what I'm saying? My ideal scenario is to kind of write the song with the person in the studio because uh, you kind of get their personality out on the record and get their feel. So let me ask you this. As far as you spoke about artists selling their catalog, we saw it happen with Lil Wayne. I think he sold up like $100 million, something like that. Yeah. John Legend recently sold his catalog. I actually posted it on our page and a lot of, you know, a lot of people thought it was a bad idea. They're like, well, you're giving away a generational wealth. That's money that's going to last forever. But like you said, it is a way to have an infusion of capital. Um, so you think that that is potentially a good idea. Why do you think that that's a good idea? Can you expand on that for people that might not fully understand why that could be a good idea? Because they, how they're looking at it is like you work so hard to build this up and you just, you're selling it, but you're missing money on the back end. Yeah. It depends where you're at in your life. The thing about being a musician is you're not always hot and your priorities might change. So you might not want to go as hard 
on creating. You're in a different space. You might have other interests. Do you know what I'm saying? So there's various reasons why people do stuff. Me personally is if you're going to take, I think even when what we were talking about before, uh, we're like, that was also a liquidation event I was looking at. And I feel like the main thing, most people get rich from a liquidation event, mm. multiple liquidation events. And then it's what you do with that money to create more liquidation events. That's from my experience of the super rich people I've met over the years, all the billionaires, they just, they've been able to hit liquidation events many, many times. It's not like uh, they have some sort of rolling income, but the big lifts in lifestyle is a liquidation event, right? Um and that's what you're looking at to me is opportunity cost, right? So if you collect the money now, what would you do with it then across 20 years? Mm. And that's the question you've got to ask yourself. Like, and only the person that's doing that deal can answer it. You know, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, like generational wealth, you could hand that over. But if you're taking 100 million and you know what you're going to do with it and you know what, it, perhaps there's some other opportunities that you know you're looking at that could create more for you. Then I would take the do the deal. You, know, you bring up a good point because um, I never really thought about it like that. But yeah, most most people they sell they build their company and they sell it. Yeah, that's like Elon Musk. That's he sold his first company, then flipped it to SpaceX and, and Tesla, right? Um, and that's happened with a lot of different people, and nobody really questions that. Mm-hmm. That's pretty normal. Like it's like you wouldn't question a business owner if they sold their company for a hundred million dollars after they built it up, right? This is it. Um, so an artist in, is kind of similar, right? You build up a catalog and you're selling it yeah. for 100. That's your exit, 100, yeah. 200, 50, whatever. And now, like you said, you use that money to maybe start another business yeah. or to you know expand. And it's like, yeah, you could potentially get, it's a calculated decision, right? It's like, okay, 100 million today or 140 million over the course of 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be worth more. <laughs> Exactly. As, as you were saying it, because I never even thought of them as liquidation events, but you said Jay. So I'm thinking about Jay. I'm thinking about the Rockaway deal. I'm thinking about what he just did with the Ace of Spades. I'm thinking about what he did with Title. All these were liquid, large liquidation events on top of the catalog of music. Mm-hmm. But is there, So like you said, the catalog. So I'm interested in knowing, like, is there a formula of how many songs I need to have? How many big records I need to have before I can even consider that, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have a formula for it? A little bit. Like, my favorite thing about having experience with building money now and seeing that journey, like where no one's handed it to you, is you, if you're able to reflect on it, you can, I, you can literally do a step-by-step to how you're going to get to a certain number. So say like your objective is to get 100 grand by the end of the year, right? Mm-hmm. You can, if you've got something in place, you can work, you can figure out the steps to build value. So let's take my world I know how much my catalog is worth now. And on average, the, um, the catalog sales, from my experience, are about a 10 times multiplier on your yearly. So if your royalty for the year is a million dollars, million pounds, to buy your, for a company who's interested to buy your catalog will offer you 10 million to perpetuity. It's not a, nothing to sneeze at, do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know a lot of my friends have done those type of deals and then they just start again. Do you know what I'm saying? Because they're still working. They're still active. Obviously, so it's uh, post-dated, right? Like, so everything up until this date. Stops. And then you can go off and write some more. And you, can, you can still get paid for performing. Oh, it's just your, 
just your songwriting catalog, right? So the um, you can, and it's not like you know. I mean, before over here they had something called Entrepreneurs Relief, which is like the crazy one where basically you could sell, um, you could have a liquidation event like that, and then you could you only get taxed ten percent on the whole thing up to ten mil. Mm. So like, they still have that? Nah, they got rid of it. It's up. I think it's capped at a mil now. So, so explain that a little bit. So the idea is if you um, have, if you sell your business, so you could package up your catalog sale as some form of sale. Yeah. And especially if you're running it as a separate company. So say like you've got your touring businesses under, I don't know, Jack Jones touring. And then you've got your songwriting is under Jack Jones songs. You sell Jack Jones songs. It's essentially a merge, right? Uh, sorry, yeah, you sell, it's not yours anymore. So it's considered a cease of trading. Um, and the government used to have a scheme called Entrepreneur's Relief that if you sell, you only get taxed 10%, but you can't trade for two years to show that you've stopped working. But if depending on your age, like that's cool. Do you know what I'm saying? So, but that's gone now. Um, that was like, they get, they're not, they're not showing love to those kind of things anymore, <laughs> if I'm being honest with you. But the, like, so it's a 10 time multiplier. So if you're earning a million a year uh, from your royalty, you're getting 10 mil and etc. So the way I work, I call it a pipeline. Um, and uh, you have your target, and you have your stretch target. So let's say I have one hit a year. Yeah. Um, and I know on average, I'm getting 30 to 40, 30 to 50% of a publishing share on those records. If I want to increase my bottom line for that sale, I need to increase that quantity of records and either maintain that success or grow it. Do you know what I'm saying? So I then get down to like, this is the problem solving that I perhaps some creatives don't want to think about. But I think all the best artists that we've seen take over the Nicki Minaj's, the Kanye's or, you know, Jay-Z's, they think about these things and they solve these problems. Do you know what I'm saying? So like the you know, you can say, okay, how am I going to increase my songs? Do I work with more people? Do, but that's going to dilute me slightly. Like, how do I create that? How do I get the relationships to create that kind of factory effect? Do you know what I'm saying? That um, just to have more chances of having hits. Like, and you uh, say, so my stretch target now is like, okay, if I can get five records out a year of a fairly consistent success, that's going to add to my bottom line. And I know that my multiplier is going to grow. So I told you about my magic number the other day. I was like, I want to get to this. That's how I can build it. It's literally just stacking. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, and I love that aspect of it because it's like, it's less of a kind of a pipe dream. You know, we're like, oh, I just need to hit a ridge. You know what I mean? I just need to hit like something lucky needs to happen. Or no, I can literally just tell you the steps that I'm going to take and I just need to build it. Do you know what I mean? And it's different from like a, traditional artists where they're like, I got to put out this album. This album has to break and we have to have a big record on it. Your focus is, let me just get five, maybe three or four songs. A year. A year. Yeah. Totally different like concept. Totally. Obviously, you can, uh, one of my favorite phrases is there are many ways to skin a cat. Yeah. It's probably not a good phrase to me. <laughs> Sorry to all that. It's an old phrase. I don't even know where it comes from, but it's one of my friends that says it. But it just obviously means like there, there are loads of routes to get to places and you have to work with what you got, right? 
So in the dance community, no one wants an album for you, bro. Unless you're Daft Punk or something like that. Like, so in, and in dance as well, like you're fading if you aren't dropping, like, which I feel like rap's becoming a bit like that. Like you have to just keep dropping projects. And then there's some spaces reserved for the Kendricks of this world that can drop a project every three years and everyone rushes to go and listen to it. Um, but that's what he's working with is you can only do you, do you know what I'm saying? So for me, the best way is to just keep dropping songs. But if you're more of an album artist and you're able to captivate your audience like that, then that'll be fine too. You just got to work with what you got. Do you know what I'm saying? So you're the first person I actually, I actually ever heard about that's You're speaking about it like in VC terms. And you're speaking of like a startup company where it was like a 10 times multiplier. Yeah. Um, an exit strategy, a buyout liquidation. Uh, it's interesting because like I said, I've never heard any, I, I've never heard any musician talk about multiples. Only people I hear talk about multiples is startup companies or in the VC world. Yeah. Um, how did you start thinking about like music in, in that sense? It started... My f- grandfather was a classic, um, he, he lived in Malaysia uh, and uh, he was that classic um, millionaire next door. In Malaysian ring it, so obviously when you bring that back, but like, you know, he had a job and he saved uh, and then he invested and then he built up his retirement fund, right? But that's what got me interested in financial literacy, do you know what I'm saying? And I... Uh, it was just always there, but I never had the confidence, but I just always kept my eye on the business world. And that's why I was related to artists like Jay-Z. They would do these deals. And that's when it, I start, when I started to meet other like-minded people. And then the blessing about music is you meet, there's a fantasy around music, right? Like the, the finance guys want to hang out with the music dudes because we're the, we're the fun ones, right? That like, you always get this, right? You'll go, I'll talk to someone who's running a hedge fund and go, oh, it's cool, man. Like, you, you're moving a lot of capital. Like, oh, you must be a buzz. He goes, yeah, but I'm not as good as you. Like, you know, there's that <laughs> thing, right? And, um, but the beauty of that is you, you meet these individuals that teach you their way of thinking. And then when I took a step back and actually you talk about Jay-Z with the Rockaware aspects of it and like he's selling these mini, these assets. And then I've started thinking about it in terms of business, and being entrepreneurial, it just started to click. And I think one of the biggest responsibilities you have if you want to make money, when you have money, you got to understand it. So that was just all that process of educating myself and how to grow. And I, if I'm, you know, if you're going to learn about money, you got to learn from the money men, the money women out there, rather than the perhaps the other musicians. You know what I'm saying? That in my opinion, like, and then you apply it. So like. The other thing I think about is uh, asset building assets within what you do. And that's something I'm still working on. Like, so for example, the song, if you, any startup, you build asset classes within your startup outside of just like your revenue, right? People often focus a lot on that, but if you can build asset classes, so what asset classes like patents, databases of information, like data, um, you know, your brand name, your um, your merch, like you guys have it, right? Yeah, different businesses within a business. Different businesses, and it all adds to your multiplier rather than just your your actual turnover and profit, right? Mm-hmm. And that when we think about Jay Z, that's what he's doing. Like that's what he did. Like he had Rockaware, Rockefeller. He had his own catalog. 
Then he bought drinks. Like, he understood the idea. And French Montana feels a little bit like that at times, like with some of what he does. And I mean, the other person... Interesting comparison. <laughs> no, it's funny, like, he does not... Shout out to French. Yeah, shout out to French. I was reading an article about how he doesn't get the love. That, uh, and that, But he... Whatever it is about his music, whatever your opinion is on it, is like he's working what he's got, and like yeah, he, he's making no. And he's Martin doing is, his thing. No, he, a lot of, he's, lot of he's actually a legend, and um, he's done a lot with like a little, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like you know, no disrespect, but he's not obviously the most talented person, but he's like a cultural icon. Yeah, and then he's making the cookie stretch. Yeah, yeah. like he's using those relationships to learn, and like figuring out how to double his money, triple his money. Who could I talk to? Like, you know, when I found the Troy Carr interview you guys did so enlightening well, because this is, this is a guy that was managing Lady Gaga, took her from zero to, I think, the third album, you know, changed, like, and it was huge, right? And I love that story because even, like, the song I got out right now, uh, it's called Where Did You Go? Check it out. Um, <laughs> it, you know... I, I had everyone, apart from my manager, my family, like, love the, the song. I had everyone telling me that, what are you doing? We don't understand. Don't do it. And now it's becoming one of the biggest records in the country right now. Mm-hmm. And that was, I heard that was the same for Gaga. And then Troy carried on that journey. And now he's gone off to invest. I know he was in on Uber early. Yeah, yeah, all, that. all of that. That comes from building those relationships. And that's, I feel like, probably, that's what I'm kind of looking at now. I'm like, yo. How can I, how can I expand? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So what was the deal with you um, working with the label for your, for working with the, so you're on Interscope for your label? No, I'm on a Universal, Universal. Polydor. So how was that as far as the negotiation and, and actually working out that deal um, as far as being a label owner? See, negotiation is so interesting because uh, I've now getting, I went through my first like M&A process a few years ago. So I learned a few things like that. And it's, it's, there's certain, with the label now. M&A, mergers and mergers acquisitions. Mergers and acquisitions, yeah. And like, I find negotiations so interesting because there's such, you have to control your, your momentum and what you want and where you want to end up and all that kind of stuff. But with the label, for me, I'm keep up. Whole, I try to organize it in a way where it's an environment where the deal isn't too long. So if it's not the right place, we can leave. We own the brand at the end, so we can take it wherever we want. The uh, length of time in terms of what we're doing with the label, um, we re- get the masters back after a certain period it re- of time. It reverts back. It reverts too. back. How, lo- how long does it reverse back? I think I can't remember the exact number, but okay. it's kind of like your. It's like an average term, okay, like yeah. nothing exceptional. The problem is we don't have the leverage at that point. So yeah. sometimes, this is a quote from Greta, you have to eat shit at the beginning. Yeah. You probably never stop eating shit, to be honest with you. Like everyone's eating shit at some point, but you have to like, until you're at a certain point, you can then start to combine or have like the power to get your masters back super early. Can you, can you explain that, that process? Because we've seen that and we've heard it. Like there's a 30-year term and it comes back. Yeah. Or- I think some of the artists even had it in perpetuity, so they never really got it never back. Never get it back, yeah. Can you explain what that process is like? So you have, uh, nowadays with streaming, it's kind of, you're going back into some form of golden era for music ownership, yeah? Because 
um, people can listen to your song to perpetuity. So, you know, it's not like before where it's a one-time sale of a CD and then you've got to figure out what else you're selling to your customer. You know, your people can go and listen to records billions of times. Like we look at ensuring on the weekend, do you know what I mean? Like the numbers are on one platform, you're hitting like three, almost three billion streams. Like that's a lot of money. And even if you just do the simple maths, he's made his, that company a lot of money, right? So for a label, it's within their interest to own the master to perpetuity. It's a huge asset class. It is all they care about. Like, I've seen emails from the lawyers. Uh, and obviously, the beauty about being a label is I can see how they work. Like, on the, I'm dealing with the legal team as a partner mm-hmm. from the major. So I can see how it works. And what they can mostly concerned about is perpetuity. Like, I want the masters to perpetuity. And if you, you need... The way the other ways that can work is just reducing that term. So like 10 years, 15 years, 30 years, etc. And they often have a sunset clause. So you get a part of it back, but then there's a little bit extra as well. Um, the way you get around that is you need to figure out what's going to give you leverage. So if you've got a fan base going into your deal, if you've got uh, some success already, so all the label are doing are amplifying you, you can then negotiate pretty hard. Like, you just got to know where you are. Like, it's easy sometimes, like, to throw headlines out. It's like, yeah, you don't want to do that deal. But if that's the deal that you need to get on and that's what you're working with, then play that card and then just keep it as short as possible. And, you're, you know, as a creative, you've got many seasons in you. So just trust in that. Do you know what I'm saying? Or you hope anyway. <laughs> What's the sunset clause? So sunset clause is uh, this, these periods where yeah. at, once you're out of term, how long they... Keep the masters. Keep the masters for it's called sunset, yeah. You have that in publishing deals as well. So like, um, a lot of people don't talk about publishing deals, but like publishing deals are what we're talking about selling your catalogue, right? So they give you a check to own your catalogue or a portion of your catalogue for a period of time and then you have a sunset afterwards. And what you write in that time as well. You're in a unique position, right? Because you are an artist, but now you run the label. Mm. So now you... Are you educating the artist or are you saying like, hey, I'm st- there's still a business here. We still want to have these masters for 30 years. Or are you saying like, hey, this is what you can do? Are you, are you the person that's doing that? Yeah, essentially, like I tried to take on a mentorship role with a lot of the artists because I think it's so important. Like I've got mentors now to this day, like uh, people in tech, do you know what I'm saying? And they, it's interesting to hear how they describe my business because the you know, you can make connections and then come up with new ideas. So I treat my artists the same way. You know, we have conversations and the negotiations, you know, their managers are talking to our lawyers and all that kind of stuff. But I do also break it down. Like, you know, even when an artist comes in asking for a big advance, I'm like, that's probably not a good idea because that's going to make me cautious because then I'm worried about, I'm, le- I'm worried about what you're putting out because if it don't make me what I need to make on it, you might never get out the gate because I don't want to commit. These are, it's better to do a deal that's like a nice, easy deal where, the, you know what it's like, if you pay a lot of money for something, you need it to go. So then that fucks the creativity up. Whereas if I don't, I feel invested enough where, okay, I've paid a decent amount of money for this song, but I'm also happy to let it see what happens. Do you know what I'm saying? Then I'm giving you freedom to do to be who you are. And that's the type of conversations that I have because I've just been through those experiences. Like I've done the deals where it's like, we need to go for as much fucking money as possible. I need to get paid from this deal. And then they, everyone's scared to do anything. 
because they put too much money on the line. So they they water down the art, and that's there's a, uh, there's an intro. I'm sure someone's done it. McKinsey or someone has done some curve between like the influence on capital on art and where that becomes counterproductive. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, because majors are essentially just VCs themselves. They're just jumping on like something that they think's lit. Do you know what I'm saying? And they throw their resources in it. Do you know what I mean? So like, I, I have those conversations and some people don't get it. Some people aren't willing to hear it, but I think you just, perhaps they're not who I want to work with. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and we kind of take that time. Do you know what I mean? So to sell your catalog, back to the selling catalog thing, I guess you would have to, you have to own your masters to even sell your catalog, right? Or do you have to own your publishing? Like, to even be able in a position to actually even sell your catalog, do you have to own your masters or no? No. So when I'm talking about catalog sales, I'm talking about publishing sales. Publishing. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, Getter has just done a famous one for 100 million as Who? well. Who? David Guetta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did one for yeah. 100 million. Bruce Springsteen. Bruce, oh, Bruce Springsteen did what? 500 million or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do we call it? Um, was it Tina Turner. Did she just do hers? Yeah, she, yeah, 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 she did. Yeah, Tina she did. Turner. Tina Turner. Yeah. I mean, the, obviously... You know, part of it is the perception of your music as well. Like if you, an artist that feels like the music's collected globally or uh, in enough territories where someone who's going to buy the catalogue feels like they're going to get money over a period of time. Yeah. But you can buy songs. Like I think Hypnosis um, is one of these companies. uh, um, They trade like... Was it Vert? uh, Merck. Yeah, I think think that that's one of the companies too where you can actually buy... You so, could actually buy it. Like, you could buy someone's yeah, yeah, catalog. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think some, the, there was a gentleman who actually um, did that with uh, Bodak Yellow. Yeah. Cardi, no way. Cardi, yeah, he bought yeah. it. That's yeah. fine. Early. Like, yeah. For, like, maybe a couple, like, maybe 10000 That's amazing. And it went diamond. <laughs> so think about the- That's a good like investment. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, just yeah. this, this young girl out the Bronx that he believed in. And he heard, heard the record. It was like, this is going to go. And it went. It went. Shout yeah. out to Cardi- Let's talk about before we wrap. We gotta talk about Ibiza. So Ibiza, you have a a twelve week residency. Yeah. In Ibiza. Yeah. So, I haven't announced it yet, but yeah. Oh, can you can, so can you talk about this? We can talk about it. All right. So uh, <laughs> breaking news alert. So that's a vibe. If anybody's not familiar, Ibiza is in Spain, right? Yes. Yeah. It's in Spain. It's like a, a beach town in Spain, very famous in Europe. Um, party vibes. Think of like uh, Central Pay, kind of. Yeah, like I Mike. would say that. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's just like all the best clubs in the. I would say it's one of the best places to party yeah. in the world. Like, yeah. if you're not familiar, don't worry. In a few months, you could just watch us be there. Just watch us story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> living that and life. You can live right through. We're gonna be there for sure. Although I had to, I had to tell the guys like, it, you know, there aren't any hip hop and R and B clubs out there. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That, <laughs> that's gonna be a little difficult. That'd be tough. We, I guess we'll, <laughs> we'll stand in the DJ booth. Yeah, you just be living that life. Like, yeah, but, Jax, put some, put something else on, bro. <laughs> just for one record. With like. our shades on. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but how, how did that come about? Man, like, it's a... Uh, Abifa is a really interesting... How do you pronounce place. it? I call it Abifa. That's how you Ibifa, call it? Yeah. Abifa, yeah. Abifa. Abifa. So we're saying, so it, we're saying it wrong? No, we you're say- saying it correctly because with a Z. But being a South Londoner, I've changed it to an F. Abifa. Okay. <laughs> um, but, like, it came about through my agent uh, and it's um, on David Guetta's night and I got a relationship with David Guetta. I'm sharing the residency with Idris Elba. 
Oh yeah, so it's a vibe. Yeah. He oh, he DJs too, right? He DJs yeah, yeah. as nice well, too. man. He's nice, he's nice man. Yeah, yeah. How long? So he's gonna be out there for a long time too. He'll be with. So it's like I don't know how long exactly the season is. So we're doing one month each, okay. essentially, and um, it's in High IB Firm, basically, which is an amazing club. Uh, there's even a, a DJ in the toilet, like they, a DJ in, in the bathroom, in the bathroom. Yeah, so like they have a mix mixed gender bathroom, and someone DJs in the middle, and Fatboy Slim who's one of our big DJs over here, like he loves to play in that room. It's just a sick vibe. What, what month are you going to be there? <laughs> I'll be there June, September, and uh, I think there's some other bits in between. Uh, you got to come yeah, out there. Um, and so it just like he'll do like August and then you'll do September. That's how it's working? Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, the way I got it is through, uh, I've got a relationship with David Greta and then my agent as well. Um, but, you know, I'm, I love the place because Ibiza has just got a real community spirit to it, despite it having such an influx of people coming to it. It's run by a small amount of people that are just passionate about music and they're passionate about nightclub culture and bringing those experiences for people. Uh, so I'm looking to get stuck in, man. We're going to be getting the villa there, bringing my whole family out, bring my whole team. We're just going to post up, doing some dinners, going and supporting everyone and just making the most of it, man, because, you know, it's a, it's, it's a big look. Yeah, you brought up the family, so... I guess we can end with the family. I want to talk about this, the, the song, uh, I Miss You. Yeah. Um, happened during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, inspired by the family. Yeah. Turned out to be a, a pretty good record. Yeah. How did it come, where were you at when you, in the process of creating that song? I mean, with that, it's just, you know, I just, I always write lyrics from the heart. You know what I'm saying? And uh, perhaps this is what I was saying earlier about you don't know your journey. Like because of my last deal where I was writing essentially rock music, rock pop, I bring that honesty in my lyrics to dance music and you can kind of feel that. So like, you know, I, I always just draw on those influences and it, it, I just wanted to make a record that was a little bit deeper. And uh, so that, that was kind of where that song come about. But family's a big influence on me. Like, you know, I'm not really... It's probably what keeps me kind of always wanting to grow and just kind of grounded is because I don't really get caught up in the life. I'm not really trying to compete like, in that way. I'm competitive. Don't get it twisted. Like, I want to be in the ring punching with the big boys in the charts. Do you know what I'm saying? I love playing that game. I love seeing all my stats, like all of that. Like, uh, like Ed Sheeran needs to take a break. Like, <laughs> just needs to chill out for yeah, a no, second. No let up do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, but... Um, but for me, the, you know, family just allows me to not get too, like, caught up in it. Do you know what I'm saying? It gives you a reason to get up and keep doing it. Do you know what I mean? So, like, it's, family is super important to me, man. Let me ask you a few music questions before we wrap. Uh, DJing. So, DJing has become huge in your world. Not really so much the hip-hop world. So, yeah. But the house music, EDM, techno, where, like, you see the Forbes list of the highest paid DJs. Yeah. And these guys is making like fifty million dollars a year, and they're doing shows with like thirty thousand people, mm. and there's no performer. Like the DJ is the I performer. Know. So, how is that? How have you seen that? Probably like you've seen the evolution of that, and you're in this space. So, how do you feel about that? And like, what actually made that become so popular as far as like celebrity DJs? I mean, the big shift was EDM culture in the states, like that whole time um Calvin Harris David Guetta uh, Avicii rest in peace like 
they, these guys would have started off just making music that they love and then the money got involved and it just it made it go crazy. Like, and Vegas, that's just what it is, right? It's dance music now. And it's really interesting to watch. Like, the numbers that you hear are crazy. Like, people getting paid up to a million just to turn up and play records. But the work is done in the studio. Like, you get to have those fees because your music has reached that many people. Like, you know, it, the, the DJing bit is just like the final output. Do you know what I'm saying? And uh, then you can make it what you want. Like, I know David Guetta, he works meticulously hard to make sure his set is unique to the point that you can't get anything he's playing unless you would come to the show. Even though he's playing his hits, but he'll play it in a way that you've never heard it before. So there's a lot of work, even though the actual process for that type of artist on the stage is on the surface will look easy, but it's all the work that goes into it. And I just think like people just love the the excitement of it. Do you know what I mean? But again, there's different artists. Like me personally, like I play differently. Do you know what I mean? And a lot more groovy and a little less like hype. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh so it just kind of, because I kind of come up with it more from a, a hip hop perspective, which is like like slamming mixes, do you know what I mean? Rather than long mixes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's just like different ways to do it, do you know what I mean? But I, again, it's whether, you know, you get people get greedy. So perhaps it stops the art form from progressing a little bit at times, do you know what I mean? Can you talk about the price, especially in music? There was a time where you said that you, we, you looked to America to hear the sound mm. and the influence. Mm. And now that there's so much talent here, you really don't even have to look across the pond. No. We got so much stuff that you bring in. What has that transition been like for you in the space? It's been tricky, if I'm being honest with you, because you'd think because of the internet that, you know, it's, it is in some parts easier to reach the world. But people are also becoming more regionalized. So, um, you know, over here, a lot of people aren't listening to any American music, really. Like, you know, they just listen to British drill and rap and, and what's popping here because uh, the scene's becoming so engulfing. And the same with other places like Italy and Germany. And um, and like when I look at what's popping in the States, when I look at Shazam or look at the top 50 on Spotify or whatever, some of the records I've never heard of. <laughs> and like, that's tricky, man, because it's hard now to like be a global, have a global record it, because the markets just aren't engaged. Do you know what I'm saying? So I think it, the, yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting time. And my personal thought as well is like the, we're fighting for art at the moment a little bit. Like there's a lot of information out there now. So like there are a lot more people that are like pretty good at making music. So there's a, a lot of artists, like there's fucking 60,000 songs coming out every day. Um, and that's a lot of competition um, for people's attention. So I think it's tricky, man, if I'm being honest with you, like as a, for artists now and being able to stand out and even make noise in America in that way. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. American radio, it feels like it's only playing certain stuff nowadays. Like it, as a dance record, it's almost impossible to get on Amer- like high up American daytime radio and stuff like that. Like, yeah, so like 18 songs. Let me ask you the last question. Let's talk drill music. Yeah. Because um, I know it's not, Something that you do, but this is... I've been observing it. Yeah, it's really happening yeah. like, in the UK. So the interesting thing that I find with Drill is that it starts in Chicago. Yeah. Comes to London. And then it, it's like 
the wave in New York right now. Like all the young rappers, that's like the most popular. All the kids, like they listening to drill music. So when I'm analyzing this, Chicago drill doesn't really sound like New York drill. It's a little different. But New York drill sounds very much similar to London, London drill. drill. Yeah. So as I was in London, I was asking a few people, and they said, well, one of the reasons is that a lot of the producers in London actually produce records for Ameri- New York drill. Yeah, New York yeah, drill. yeah. So what's your thoughts on that? Like, because I know the drill music is just, it's like a tidal wave, like, and it's yeah. just so popular. It's kind of dangerous because there's a lot of, there's a lot of violence that's attached to it, right? Um, but like you've seen the scene change in London, and we're seeing this, the scene change in New York, and it's crazy because it's almost identical. Like I said, even like I'm listening to it, I'm like, they sound like they're from New York. Yeah, yeah. And it's like very, very similar. So, what's your thoughts on the, on the evolution of drill music out here and the popularity of it? I mean, I can only speak purely as an observer because, like, I'm not making drill. Do you know what I'm saying? But I'm a fan. And I feel like, I mean, the first thing to be said is that drill, although it sounds violent, like it doesn't create violence. But the bit that creates violence is like the people who are making it, perhaps talking about real life events for themselves. And that creates the violence for the other people involved. But I, listening to drill don't make you violent. Like it's, it's, a, it's a bubbly vibe. Like I think what's so intoxicating about it is the flows. Like it, you can dance to a drill flow like on its own. It's like a different groove. Reminds me of dance hall, man. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, it's very captivating. Super. And I rate all the British producers that are doing bits in the in the States for drill. Because that's what I was talking to you about. Like where when I was first starting out, to be in black music, you you had to be in the States, basically. There was no scene over here. So like that's the beauty of the internet that they can just send beats out. Yeah. I know a lot of the um uh Rest in peace to um oh my god I've forgotten his name the biggest drill artist in the world Pop Smoke Pop Smoke Pop Smoke Rest in was peace was done by a lot of it was done by yeah. a uh, British producer right so like yeah I just found that out recently yeah like so it's sick man like I think also because it come we've got like a it reminds me a lot of grime in the sense that do you guys know about grime uh, I got put onto that yesterday actually I got a whole education out to my my guy Dayu. He gave me a whole ever, and then there's another thing that came after that, right? Or something before that. You had like grime, um, like grime kind of grime, more of a like a vibe, like a party type of vibe. No, that grime is like pure industrial street music, like like it's gutter, like well, it's meant the, to sound like trash. Who's like, the artist? The biggest artist in that at the time it would be like Skepta, and then Skepta, old right? crews like Roll Deep, yeah. uh, you know, D Double E. Uh, Bruiser, like these are all artists from back in the day, and it, uh, it, like, the history of it is well documented in books by uh, there's a DJ called um, uh, Target who's written a book about it. It's uh, it's probably one of our, um, uh, you know, you come up with genres, so we had drum and bass as well. Uh, it's 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 something that we created, like it's, and I started out making gram as well, and the reason why Joel reminds me of it is just got that cold vibe to it. It's quite a cold sounding music. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a very digital. Do you know what I mean? And so that, I feel like that's why we're very, the British producers over here just have that in our soul, man. Like, so it's very natural for them to make drill music. Man. Where, where does Giggs fit in there? Is he, is he grime or is he? Nice rap, I would rap. say, yeah. Right. Wait. <laughs> that's, gig, that's Giggs calling. That's Giggs calling. Are you getting Giggs on the pod? <laughs> 
Uh, hopefully. Hopefully. Giggs is the dude, bruv. Wait, well, I could do a good Giggs impression. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do it on camera, though. <laughs> nah, yeah, nah, it's interesting, man, to see, you know, the similarities in the music and the cultures blending together, fashion and all of that. It's very... One thing about traveling the world, though, is you see how people's environments shape the culture of what they like. So, like, our music over here, as I was just saying, is a lot is colder. It's a bit more, like, lo-fi. It's a little bit more, like, less shiny. Yeah. When I go to America and I'm cruising around L.A., it's all sunny and yeah. slow. Nah, that's, that's, a, that's a good... I get it. Yeah, <laughs> like, they don't want that stuff. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Nah, because you in L.A., it's, it's, you know, palm trees and palm trees. So that's what I'm saying. It's like, that's that was... It, even like that's their vibe, like you know what I'm saying. Like even going back to Snoop, Dre, even before, like that's their vibe. And then New York has always been gritty, because like that's the city, like you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a gritty city, and um, I can understand why London would be like that, because you know it rains a lot, it's overcast, it's cold. So it's like, like you said, your environment dictates. Like in Houston. It's spread out, so like they real slow. slow. That's like the you know the accents, uh, yeah, like yeah, they drool yeah. it a little yeah. bit. It's so interesting, yeah, man. Like yeah, when you yeah. get into the culture behind what drives the art, yeah, I mean, geographically, it really yeah, plays geographic differences. Like yeah. even the uh, in Ibiza, the kind of rise of certain genres that got popular is due to economic influences. So like uh, more low cost flights started operating. So like. Um, a different class of people were going there. And so as more of the travel routes opened up, then their taste would change. So then the DJs would have to cater to that. People and then the culture them. takes yeah. a stand. It's like the balance of economy, the economy and those shifts in business and how it affects um, the art is so interesting, man. Who's, who's, the, who's the top artist in, in the UK right now? For A couple for rap, a couple for R&B, maybe a couple for a dance. Like just, you know... A, for me, I love Central C and Drill. Like that's the that's the that's, young that's, young kid that's yeah, doing drill music, right? Yeah, like I just think, as far as I know, he's independent. The way, the amount, the work rate, the just is so consistent, and he he just knows what he's doing. It just doesn't look like he's selling out anytime soon. Like really good, and he's got something to say. And uh, I would say this doesn't get. I mean, he gets his flowers, but like, I just think Ed Sheeran is just a mammoth. Yeah, she's a, like, he's a, I mean, I mean yeah, he's an absolute, no, but he, this guy is actually probably the most productive musician, like, right now. Like, he's just knocking out songs for everybody and then just hitting hard himself as well. Like, whilst being a dad, whilst, like, he's actually insane. Um, I mean, that's one thing, though, like, I would say is, what I noticed about Ed on in terms of what he does, he sticks to it and he just hammers it. Like he writes songs and that's what he concentrates on. I know he's got his, uh, his own investments that he's doing, which if you ever talk to him, I let him speak on that. Like, but like, you know, he's worked his money well, but he gets up and he just knocks out what he's really good at. And that sometimes that one dimensional, like narrow kind of scope, he's not trying to go off and do crazy brand deals. Not, Sometimes that is the most productive thing to do, man. Do you know what I mean? So I, I really respect it, man. Uh, well, it was a pleasure, my brother. Thank Likewise, you. Thank man. you for joining yeah. us, man. I really appreciate it for sure. What would you like to tell the people? I know you got you know, a new song out. Yeah. So uh, I guess let them know that. Social media, any information, projects, anything like that. 
to come. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What's up? I'm Jax Jones and you can check me out. If you want any advice, whatever it is, just hit me up at Jax Jones on all my socials. I've got a new song out with Eminem called Where Did You Go? It's a bubbler. Big <laughs> up, man. Troy, <laughs> housekeeping idols. Yo, shout out to the UK masses, man. This has been an incredible uh, trip. Something that we will remember forever, but we're going to be back to make more memories. So shout out to all of y'all. Shout out to Jax. This, 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 this is a real one right here, y'all. So shout out to him and his old team. And um, shout out to all the earners that showed up last night and uh, that we got to meet and talk to. Uh, and shout out to our UK, our UK team out here. It's been incredible. Uh, and shout out to everybody that supported the merch. And uh, thanks for rocking with us. Yeah, and definitely more UK content to come. EYL UK division soon come. Um, it only makes sense. When you, Euro. When you, Euro. When you, when you yeah, Euro. Well, we're not in Europe no more, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> Brexit. Yeah, yeah, Brexit, maybe. The Brexit. Brexit. Um, so, yeah, more more content to come for all different parts of the continent of Europe. But uh, right now we're in London, so we're focusing on, on the London massive. So, once again, thank you for the hospitality. We appreciate it. Thank you guys for rocking with us. We'll see you next week. Peace. My graduates from my school being Forbes. Backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs> a mic drop. Backdrop. Backdrop. <laughs>